Whether you are a Christian or not, if you celebrate Christmas at all, Christmas carols are undoubtedly a part of your Christmas celebration. They just are. So what's funny about Christmas carols is that whether we're talking about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, uh, Jolly Old St. Nick, Frosty the Snowman, along with those carols, I guarantee the most secular person you know probably also knows and will sing, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king without even blinking, without even thinking twice about that. And I think that means carols, they have this kind of universal appeal to them. That, that, that there is a general openness to the message of a Christmas carol where there might not be openness to a direct gospel message. But one of the really interesting things you see when you stop like we did today and really look at the lyrics of some of these carols, and we reflect on them more closely, we see they actually contain some very deep, rich theology. It teaches us all about who Jesus is and about the gospel, which is just what God did in Jesus to save the world. It's incredible when you really stop and look at what we're singing. So we're beginning this new series this week as we head towards Advent, Advent called, O Come, Let Us Adore Him. And each week leading up to Christmas, we're going to do just that. We're going to stop. We're going to just reflect a little bit more deeply, slow down, and look at the lyrics of a number of well-known Christmas carols, reflecting on the words that we sing and seeing how those very same truths are reflected in God's Word. And the hope is that as we do that, we are going to be prepared in our own hearts for the celebration of Jesus' birth that we're going to grow in our appreciation for these truths that we sing about every year, which you're going to hear in homes and every shopping mall that you travel around this Christmas. And ultimately, the, the main goal being that it would lead all of our hearts in doing this to truly, just as the title of this series suggests, to come to adore Jesus. That's the point, that we would come to adore Jesus either for the first time or just more than we already do. So, this morning, the first carol I want us to look at together is one that we've already sung this morning. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's 133 in your hymn book if you want to open that up and have it beside you. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We're actually going to focus in the majority of our time around that second verse in particular. Now, if you already know this carol well, I mean, this is, this is the, the Charlie Brown Christmas Carol, right? This is the one that you hear, those kids, you know, with the mouths mouth open like this. This is a well-known carol, or you just know it because we just sang it. You'll know that this carol is basically a birthday announcement. That's what it is. It's a birthday announcement. It's picturing the angels out in the fields there announcing to the shepherds Jesus' birth and inviting them and, and us today to come and join them in this celebration of Jesus' birth. And I think it's safe to say that many today, though certainly not all, many today do. They, they still see Christmas as a celebration of, as a remembrance of Jesus' birth. But whether it's a national holiday like Canada Day, Independence Day, or whether it's like the 23rd birthday invitation that your child has received this year because they go to elementary school and you have to invite every kid to the party, Whatever it is, although all birthday celebrations, yes, they do have significance of some kind, it needs to be said there's also something about the birth of Jesus that is entirely unique. 
When I say unique, I don't mean just unique circumstances, like, you know, we would hear about in a National Geographic Discovery Channel kind of special with Morgan Freeman narrating. I don't mean like that. I mean unique in the sense of, like, singularity, that, that there, is, there is no other birthday like this one, like this one that we're celebrating. It's, it's unique. Because the fact is that if you just see Jesus' birth as the celebration of the birth of some figure in history, you miss the significance of it entirely. Because the birth of a historical figure is not that important, actually. I mean, it's nice, but so what? What we see in the birth of Jesus is much more than the birth of a great moral teacher, the birth of a well-known revolutionary. What we see in the birth of Jesus is what theologians call the incarnation. The, the, the God of the universe entering into human history and dwelling among us. That's different, right? And he's doing that by coming in human form. What we read this morning in John's Gospel. The Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, accommodating himself, if you will, to our human weakness in such a way that we're not terrified by his, the presence of divine glory among us and that we're not consumed, we're not just blown up by it. And God's glory, it truly is consuming. Because if you know the Old Testament, you'll remember a conversation, Exodus 33. Uh, Moses is having a conversation with God and he says, I want you to show me your glory. And God says, basically, I, I can't or, or it would kill you. And he's not being facetious. He's saying, if I were to reveal my glory to you in all its fullness, it would kill you. It's literally like you asking an astronaut, saying, you know, I want to know what outer space feels like without wearing a spacesuit. You can't. Our bodies can't withstand it. Same thing. Which I think tells us something really significant about the way that Jesus came. Namely, I think it tells us when Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, he didn't come to blow us up. He didn't come to wipe us out. He didn't come to judge us. He came to reveal the Father's glory, to reveal it to us in such a way that we could understand it, we could see it and be around it, but be transformed and renewed by it. I know I'm using space analogies here. I'm not trying to tell you that Jesus is some kind of space alien come down. That's not what I mean. I'm trying to give us a picture to understand how it is that in taking on human flesh, in, in a sense, Jesus was shielding us from the presence of this divine glory, which, which would consume us if we were to just, with the naked flesh, encounter it. Almost like a, a reverse space suit, if you will. He's doing that so we can be in the presence of the glory of God without being consumed. An understanding which I think is really beautifully pictured here in this second verse of the carol, which speaks of Jesus as veiled in flesh. Think of that, veiled in flesh. What is the second verse there? Second way down, halfway down. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. That's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Hail the incarnate deity. This is the incarnate Son of God. Come to dwell in human flesh. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. That means God with us. 
veiled in flesh. That's how this carol pictures Jesus coming, veiled in flesh. Now the passage that we just read this morning speaks about, Paul's talking about another veil. Now in this case, it's a veil that, that Moses wore, but it was also a veil that had the same uh, purpose as Moses. Moses' veil had the same purpose as Jesus, to shield us from God's glory. In this case, it was the glory that was reflected in his face. What I want to show you from the passage that we read this morning is how what Paul says about the purpose of that veil that Moses wore and the removing of that veil has direct significance to the coming of Jesus. The, the, the God of the universe veiled in human flesh and dwelling among us. And the way I want to do that is by looking at our passage in three ways this morning. I want to show you the veil that Moses wore, the veil that Jesus wore, and then finally, removing the veil. Okay? The veil that Moses wore, the veil Jesus wore, removing the veil. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them up to that passage again in 2 Corinthians 3? Follow along with me as we consider what is truly unique about the birthday we sing about in this carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. So let's look first of all at the veil that Moses wore. The veil that Moses wore. Look with me again at verse 7 and 8. Paul says this, Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Now, throughout this passage, it's really clear Paul is trying to contrast two different things. He says there's something that he refers to as the ministry that brought death, the ministry that, that brings condemnation to men on the one hand, and the ministry of the Spirit, which you see in verse 8, on the other hand. Paul says they both display God's glory, but the ministry of the Spirit is superior to the other because it's a glory that doesn't fade away. In fact, verse 18 there says it's a glory that's ever-increasing. And without going into a long history here this morning of covenant theology, let me just say very simply, what Paul is doing, he's contrasting the old covenant that was set up with God's people through Moses and the new covenant that he's promised to set up through Jesus. A covenant just simply being an agreed-upon set of standards by which that define the terms of a relationship. Just think of your marriage vows as an example. So he has an old covenant and a new covenant that he's contrasting with each other, and he's saying that new covenant is going to be superior because it has a glory that doesn't fade. The basis of that old covenant, that ministry that brought condemnation, was summed up with, it was symbolized in the giving of the law that Moses recorded on those two stone tablets. You remember Charlton Heston, uh, uh, Christian Bale, whoever it is, they, they wrote the, the message on the stone tablets and they brought it down. That's what he's referring to there. In verse 7, he talks about the ministry which was engraved in letters on stone. That's what he's talking about there. The basis of the new covenant, this ministry of the Spirit that he talks about in verse 8, which was, this is alluded to all through the Old Testament. One of the places you see it most clearly is in Ezekiel 36. There it talks about the law being written now not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of our hearts talks about uh, the Spirit dwelling within us now, as opposed to the Spirit leading us and directing us from above. Look at verse uh, 7 again. Paul speaks about here Moses' face shining with glory. 
What's that about? Well, I think what he's doing there is referring to back in the book of Exodus, where Moses would return from meeting with God, whether that was when he came down from Mount Sinai with the law, or when he went into the tent of meeting to meet with God and hear what God had to say to the people. When he would come out, his face would be blindingly radiant. So much so that, that uh, it says, verse 7, the Israelites couldn't look steadily at his face. Verse 13 says he actually had to wear a veil to cover it up. It was so bright, which means it was bright enough that it wasn't just like when you go away somewhere sunny for a while and you come back, people are like, oh, you're going on vacation? You're hitting up the tanning beds? It wasn't like that. It was a sensation of like when you're sleeping in a room and someone flicks on the light and your eyes cannot adjust to it. It's so bright. You're pulling the covers. You're pulling the pillow over your face. That's how bright it was. Uh, I don't know what it looked like. I mean, I, I keep picturing that little glowworm toy that you put in your kid's bed like a nightlight. I, I don't think it was like that, but it was bright. Bright so much so he had to wear a veil over his face. But before we even talk about what that glory was shining on his face, first question you'd want to ask is, Paul seems to be referring to this old covenant really negatively. I mean, why would he refer to something that God had set up through Moses, which who, Moses was kind of a big deal to Jewish people, and which was still the prevailing religious practice in such negative terms? I mean, he's calling it the ministry of death. That's pretty negative. I mean, that's a little bit like sitting down for dinner with George Lucas and saying, you know what, I love what you did with the Star Wars films. But man, that Indiana Jones trilogy was no masterpiece, was it? It would be like, excuse me? It's a little bit like, why is he talking about it so negatively? And the answer, I believe, is that God himself knew that the giving of the law, the Mosaic Covenant, was always going to be temporary. It was going to be temporary, not because the Israelites could not have had a restored relationship with God by following it, but because God knew in their human weakness they never could. They couldn't keep it up. They couldn't do it. So in a sense, the law did bring death. It brought condemnation, as Paul says, just like he said, because it set up this unattainable standard for them. It revealed the complete inability of human means to restore our relationship with the Father. So we couldn't do it. We couldn't keep it up. So he calls it the ministry of condemnation, of death. In his classic allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan, which if you're a member, you should have that copy now. John Bunyan tells this story of a man named Christian and his friend Faithful who are walking along the king's highway towards the celestial city. The whole book, it's a, it's a picture of the Christian life talking about from before we know Jesus until the end of our life when we go to meet him. It's a whole life picture told through a story form. On this journey to the celestial city, these friends encounter all kinds of obstacles and enemies as they go along the way. Listen to how Christian's friend, Faithful, describes one of those attacks. The language is a little bit old, but I think you'll be able to get it. Listen to what he says. Faithful says, Now, when I had got about halfway up, I looked behind me and saw someone coming after me, swift as the wind. So he overtook me, just about the place where the settle stands. So as soon as the man overtook me, he was but a word and a blow, for he knocked me down and laid me for dead. When I was a little come to myself, I asked again why he had served me so, and he said, Because of my secret inclining to Adam the first. And with that, he struck me another deadly blow on my breast, beat me down backward. So I lay at his foot as dead as before. 
And so when I came to myself, I, I cried to him for mercy, and he said, I know not how to show mercy. And with that, he knocked me down again. And in reply, Christian says to his friend, that man that overtook you was Moses. He spareth none, neither knoweth he how to show mercy to those that transgress his law. Because you see, the law, although it could bring life, it needed to be followed perfectly. If you broke one part of the law, you broke all of it. So this is undoubtedly why Paul would refer to that old covenant under Moses as the ministry that brought death, that brought condemnation. I mean, it did come with glory. I mean, that's, that's why Moses' face was shining so much. But it was always limited by the people trying to live it out because they couldn't keep it up. And it always pointed ahead to the need for a better covenant. What about this glory, though, shining from Moses' face? I think that's the bigger question. We've got Moses. He's come from meeting with God. His face is shining with glory. Why would he cover it up? Why would he want to put a veil over that and cover up the glory of God? Isn't that a good thing, that we could look on it and see that? I believe the answer to that is, once again, in God's response to Moses, when he asked to see his glory, Exodus 33, namely that God's glory is more than our sinful, finite humanity can bear. We can't bear to look on it. And in a sense, we don't want to look on it. So thus, being in the presence of God's glory, even His reflected glory, is a presence that needs to be mediated somehow. It needs something in between us, or, or, or we can't bear it. So in a sense here, but it's both because our humanity makes us unable... And our sinfulness, our sinfulness makes us unworthy to be in the presence of it. And it's for that reason that most commentators agree that while Moses' veil was meant to be a protective act, he was protecting the people of Israel from being overwhelmed by God's glory, shielding them in a sense, it was also a condemning act, demonstrating for them in a visual way that they were cut off from God. He was showing them with the veil that they were unable to be in the presence of God's glory because of their sin. That's what he was doing by wearing this veil. The implication in Moses' day as well as in our own is clear. Because of our sin, we are unable, any of us, to be in the presence of God's glory. We can't do it. We are unable to because of our Sin. We can't be in the presence of his glory. It's, it's exactly as the prophet Malachi says in Malachi 3.2, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Or as Isaiah 59.2 says, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. You see it? That means that's what Moses' veil was for the people of Israel. It was a visual representation of their inability to be in the presence of God's glory. A daily reminder of the block between sinful humanity and God. Which means that what people in Moses' day needed and what we need still today is, is a mediator. We, we, need, we need someone like Moses, like a high priest, who, who can go into the presence of God and who can go in for us and, and set up a better arrangement for us, set up a covenant where, that, that we can actually live up to, 
Because this one only brings condemnation and death. We need a mediator to come and set up a better covenant for us. Which leads us really beautifully to talk about our second point, talking about the coming of Jesus and the veil that Jesus wore. The veil that Jesus wore. And this is where having an accurate understanding of who Jesus truly is is going to help us to see, first of all, why Jesus' birth truly is unique. And secondly, how because of that uniqueness, Jesus can be that mediator of a better covenant between us and God. Now, this is something we covered much more extensively last Christmas. If you were here with us in our series called Isaiah's Jesus, if you were here with us, we did a whole, uh, really a Christology all the way through Jesus. There's no way we have time to go through everything I said uh, a year ago. But here's what I do. We do need to review. We do need to go back and talk about this one point. Because one of the core tenets of our Christian faith and something that is truly unique about Jesus' birth is that that baby whose birth we celebrate every Christmas was both fully God and fully man. Do you remember this? He was fully God and fully man at once. Not 60% one, 40% the other, not not 50-50. God and 100% man at the same time. And yes, we said, I don't know how that can be. But yes, that's what the Bible tells us. He was fully God. Now, the humanity of Jesus, as we said, for most secular people, that's actually not that big a deal to talk about. They're quite happy to talk about that because they think that's all Jesus was, right? He was just a great moral teacher, happy to talk about the humanity of Jesus. It's the deity, it's the 100% God part that they tend to have more of a problem with. Fair enough. But the testimony of the Bible is clear. Places like John's Gospel, he speaks about Jesus as the Word who was with God and who was God, taking on flesh and dwelling among us. Places like Paul in Philippians, where he speaks about Jesus as, although he was equal with God, took on the very nature of a servant being found in human likeness. Or one of the places I think it's most powerfully illustrated in the book of Hebrews. Speaking of Jesus, listen, as the radiance of God's glory... He is the exact representation of his being. Wow. Which means, and this is what should really blow our minds whenever we come to the celebration of Christmas. It means when Jesus comes to earth 2,000 years ago, unlike Moses, he's not just someone who comes from God's presence and reflects his glory into the world. He is God's presence in the world. He is the, the presence of God's glory here in the world reflecting to us. It's incredible. And he's doing that, though, in a way that's different, but also in a way that's the same. Because in a sense, he is like Moses because he protects us. How? By veiling himself in flesh, just as the hymn so beautifully depicts it. He's, he's shielding us, just like Moses' veil did. He's protecting us from being overcome by the, the fullness of God's glory here on earth. The only difference is that he doesn't place a veil on himself once he shows up, he arrives already wearing it. Which is one of the things that makes Jesus' birth so missable. He shows up like any other child and he looks like any other child. And yet veiled in that flesh is the fullness of God's presence. Now yes, there are clues and hints throughout New Testament that kind of point to who Jesus truly is. I mean, he's performing miracles, he's raising people from the dead in in his baptism Heavens open up, Father's saying, this is my son I love, Spirit descending on him. That's a big deal. And I think most notably, one of the places you you can't miss it 
is in Mark's gospel. Mark talks about where Jesus is transfigured, where, if you will, he, he pulls back his veil just for a moment and reveals the full blinding radiance of his, of his glory to his three closest disciples. But for the most part, Jesus stays behind that veil, not revealing the fullness of who he is. And when people even see it, he tells them not to tell anybody. He's wearing that veil for a purpose. Okay, but if all that's the case, and Jesus' veil does protect us from the crushing weight of God's glory like Moses' veil did, that's great, but then how is he different than Moses? Isn't this just the same thing? How is this new covenant that's supposed to be coming in Jesus any different or better than the Mosaic covenant that just brought death and condemnation? Good question. I think the answer for us is in verse 13. Look with me there. Paul says, We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face. Why? To keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. So what Paul is saying is that the ministry of Moses, this ministry that condemns men, it was a veil that Moses wore that was about hiding God's glory, about shielding us but blocking us off from it. It kept us from looking at it. But if you look at verse 14 and 15 now, you see Paul takes that literal veil that Moses was wearing and now he uses it like an analogy. He uses an analogy to describe a spiritual veil that continues to remain over people's hearts and which also keeps them from seeing the glory of God and thus turning to him and being saved by him. It, it blocks them in, in a way that keeps them from reaching God. We can't reach him now. We can't see the glory of God. But look at verse 16 now. He says here very clearly that although this veil blocks people from seeing God's glory, it is taken away, it is removed. How? In Christ. Only in Christ is it removed. How? How does Jesus remove the veil? Does he rip off his costume, show everyone his big J or whatever he had? No. Uh, that'd be like taking off your space helmet, right? That would blow everybody up. We can't do that. So what does he do? How, how does he... How, how does he remove a veil? I believe Jesus reveals the fullness of the Father's glory to us, not by removing his own veil, but by removing a different one. Which leads us to look finally at removing the veil. Removing the veil. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, Bible Jeopardy for 500 here, what's, what's the one other place you see in the Bible where the full crushing weight of God's glory is dwelling here on earth, but it's restricted from people's view, both protectively and condemningly by a veil. Where else do you see that in the Bible? Call it out if you know it. The temple. Thank you. In the temple, from, from the tabernacle back in Moses' day, to Solomon's temple, to Herod's temple in Jesus' day, there was this curtain some older translations actually refer to it as the veil. And it was doing exactly that. It was physically separating us from going into God's glorious presence. And it was also demonstrating a spiritual reality of our separation from God because of our sin. You couldn't go in there. You couldn't go behind that veil. You'd get blown up. Same thing here. Who, who could go behind the veil? Who was allowed to go back there? Well, in, in Exodus, it was Moses. He was allowed to go into the tent of meeting 
came out shining. And then once the priesthood was established, the high priest could go in, but only once a year, and he would go in to make atonement for the sins of the people. But that was it. But when we come to the end of Jesus' life, where we see him arrested, tried, and then nailed to a Roman cross, we're told about something that happens, which in a sense, for a 21st century reader, is almost meaningless, unless you know this background that we just talked about. For in Mark's Gospel, listen, Mark 15, we read these words. With a loud cry, Jesus is on the cross. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last, and what? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In the death of Jesus, the veil is now removed. The thing that blocked us from being able to enter into God's full, crushing, glorious presence is now removed in Jesus. Recounting the same events from heaven's perspective... Listen to how the book of Hebrews describes the same moment in Jesus' life. It's a bit of a longer reading, but follow along with me. I think it's really significant to what we're talking about here. Listen. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, we would, have stopped, would, would it not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 5, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. There's the incarnation. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here am I. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once and for all. The, The sin that kept us from God's presence has now been taken away in Christ. Jump down to verse 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Here's this new covenant God's setting up. And then he adds, There's sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there's no longer any sacrifice for sins. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain. That is his body. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. That's a lot, but... Do you see the connection here now between these things? Do you see what that means? This means in our passage here, verse 14, the second half of verse 14, when Paul says the veil of Moses that blocks us from access to God is removed in Christ, he's speaking about the death of Jesus. 
where Jesus' veil of flesh, if we could call it that, was literally torn with nails, with a spear, with a crown of thorns, so that in him the temple veil, which hid God's glorious presence from us, could now be removed for all time. The veil can only be removed with Christ. The thing that blocks the presence of God's glory from us can only be removed in Jesus. In that same section of Pilgrim's Progress I quoted earlier, after recounting this near-death experience that Faithful has with Moses, with the law, listen to Bunyan's glorious application of this same truth. Faithful says, He, that, that is Moses he's talking about, had doubtless made an end of me, but that one came by and bid him forbear. Christian asked him, who was it that bid him forbear? To which Faithful replies, I did not know him at first. But as he went by, I perceived the holes in his hands and in his side, and I concluded that he was our Lord. So I got up and went up the hill. That's exactly what Paul means there in verse 16 and 17, where he's talking about turning to the Lord. He's speaking of the Lord in that Old Testament, that name of God, Yahweh, the triune God of the Bible. When we turn to the Lord, he means accepting the payment for our sins, the thing that kept us from God, accepting the payment for our sins in the death of Jesus, and then enjoying freedom from the condemnation, as well as free, unhindered access to God's glorious presence behind the veil by the Spirit. That's what he means when he says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. When his Spirit is in us, now we have free access to the full, glorious presence of God whenever we want. It's no longer blocked to us by a veil. The veil has been removed in Christ. And if that even weren't enough, look how Paul concludes in verse 18. He says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, we're being transformed into his likeness with an ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Basically, he's saying that now that the veil has been removed from our hearts, we now have access to God's glorious presence, just like Moses did, and we now reflect God's glory to the world around us. Now, no, probably not like by glowing or shining. We reflect the glory of God to the world around us as we're transformed more and more into his likeness, as we are more like him in his character, in his love, in his graciousness, in his forgiveness. As we reflect what God is like, we reflect the glory of God. And we do it as he transforms us more and more into his likeness with a glory that will not fade, but will only increase. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. You're beginning to see just how much is packed into these well-known Christmas carols. I mean, we only looked at one part of one verse. So much packed in here. And do you see as well now just how vastly different Jesus' birth is, how truly unique it is. From, from any other birth that ever was or ever will be. This was the birth, the fullness of God's presence come in human form, entirely unique. 
What do you think? Will you ever be able to even sing this carol again without reflecting on that fullness of God's glorious presence all packed into this veil of a tiny baby in a manger? Or will you ever be able to sing this again without praising God for sending his son to be torn on that cross so that the veil that blocked our access to him could be removed for all time? Oh, come, let us adore him, for he alone is worthy.